So please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. It was warm before, now it's cool, right? What can you do? Is it too cool or is it okay? It's okay? Better, better a little fresh air, I think. Okay, good. Again, let yourself sit at ease and listen. And in a way, these teachings which come from the Buddhist tradition are, in a certain way, a reflection um, or a contemplation. And some of it might be valuable to you, some of it may seem true, some of it may not. And if it rings true to you and it reminds you of something that you know deeply, wonderful, and if not, just let it go. Ask for your money back. <laughs> so I want to start tonight um, with a bit of a reflection about Barack Obama's rather stunning victory. And to note that we are in the liberal republic of the Bay Area, <laughs> that there are also republicans here and libertarians and greens, and that the Dharma is not for Democrats or libertarians or republicans or, or green or anybody else. The Dharma teachings um, or the teachings of the, the path of integrity and dignity and interdependence and responsibility and compassion are, are simply teachings of wisdom to be used by people, whatever your particular political point of view is. Um, and um, yes, for some, and for many people involved, it, it was a kind of a, a giddy time. You know, in Sylvia's class on Wednesday morning, the, the day after the election, they said, can we cheer and shout for a bit? You know, and certain people wanted to anyway. I was really moved that Barack Obama spoke with such um, straightforwardness and seriousness of purpose in, um, after he, when he gave his speech after finding out that he was the president-elect. Apparently he canceled fireworks and things to not make it a big rah-rah party uh, or us against them, but to say, all right, we really have to, have to tend to some things as a, as a nation as a, and as a world. And John McCain gave one of the most eloquent of his speeches that was dignified and wise and inclusive. It was very moving and beautiful. And to hear Barack Obama, um, I mean, it's such a historic change. It's really a change of generations. And in the change of generations, it's also the first election of an African-American president, all of that. It's tremendously historic to see that someone was chosen for the content of his character and not the color of his skin, to use Martin Luther King's phrase, is an enormously moving thing, whatever your political point of view is. And when Martin Luther King said that the arc of history may be long, but it bends toward justice, 
And then Barack Obama echoed that in his words when he talked about so many people putting their hands on the arc of history and bending it toward the hope for uh, positive change in the world. Um, I just found it quite moving and extraordinary. Um, But whoever you voted for, and people voted for all kinds of people, um, the question now in these times of great change is how do we maintain wisdom and presence in this new occasion, in this new uh, generation, if you will? How do we transform the difficulties that we run into personally and socially and collectively, politically? Um, And the inevitable obstacles. I mean, in some way you sign up for leadership and what you're signing up for is obstacles. I mean, you set up, set a goal, fine, but what happens immediately is that you meet obstacles. Same thing happens in spiritual life. You set a goal, all you do is close your eyes and meditate, and the obstacles say, here we are, you know, they just wait for you. And it's not a simple thing, you know, I was um, traveling and doing a little bit of teaching in Palestine and Israel last winter, and when you go to the Western Wall, it's sometimes called the Wailing Wall, the, the wall that's the, the last part, the remaining part of the Temple of Solomon, apparently, um, and a very holy place for both Jews and for Muslims as well, because the, there's a, there's the Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. Um, people will leave their little prayers in the cracks in the wall, thinking it's a place that kind of has a direct connection to God or something like that. Well, apparently, I found out, you can email your prayers to the wall. <laughs> There's a shop nearby, and you can email them in, and they'll print them out and fold them in a paper and stick them in the wall. Um, uh, but as the Dhammapada said, the way is not in the sky, and the way is not someplace else. The way is found in the heart. Um, and so, how do we work with difficulties? It's one thing to email and fax, but actually it's got to be here, you know. Now, what's traditional when I think about leadership, the leadership of a new um, president-elect, um, in Thailand and Burma, in Buddhist countries from which these teachings come, when you become a leader, um, you take bodhisattva vows, as part of your um, part of your dedication to wise leadership, um, to sustaining whatever propelled you into that role of leadership, you go take a formal. So the 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 kings or the the, the prime ministers and so forth will take um, take bodhisattva vows. Now, what bodhisattva vows are? Bodhisattva is a compound word. Um, Sattva means being, and Bodhi means awakened. And so, together it means a being who is committed to awakening, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances of the world. And there are traditional vows that Bodhisattvas will take in in the kind of Buddhist um, historical traditions all around the world um, that go something like... um, Sentient beings, beings, living beings, are numberless. I vow to bring, to offer my life to bring awakening to them all. Um, obstacles are innumerable. I vow to overcome them all. Um, 
You know, the Dharma gates, the teachings are uh, um, inexhaustible. I vow to master them all, and, and so forth. Um, they're, you know, not little vows. They're like, <laughs> I'm going to save every single sentient being that exists in all planes of existence. Or the Dalai Lama, who every day takes these beautiful vows from Shantideva in the morning. May I offer myself as a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for all who are weary, medicine for those who are sick, the tree of miracles, the vase of plenty, the boundless compassion for all living beings. May I bring awakening and sustenance, enduring as long as the earth and sky for countless eons, returning again and again until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. That's his morning prayer. May I offer myself. It's quite a serious prayer in a way, and a very poetic and a beautiful one. But, you know, you think how hard it is just for the people in your family, right? <laughs> you think it's going to be all sentient beings. Um, But the deeper understanding of the Bodhisattva vow is this, in, in the Buddhist, Buddhist teachings of, the, of um, the principles of intention, are that we can set our intention as a vow, if you will, we can set the highest intention, which is like setting the compass or the compass of the heart, setting the inner direction toward that which is most noble or most um, beautiful or most inspiring um, or most treasured by us. And to undertake the vows of a bodhisattva is to reflect and decide, this is what matters to me in this human incarnation more than anything else. And I set myself in this direction. And it doesn't matter whether it's a a year or a hundred years or a hundred thousand eons as they describe for a bodhisattva, you know, eons come and go. Or as Wes Nisker says, empires rise and fall like the abdomen of God. It's just the universe breathing, right? And so we get the eight worldly winds which we have in our own lives. You sit here and meditate and you can feel them blowing through you. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And for a hundred thousand mahakalpas of lifetimes, of eons of lifetimes, the bodhisattva practices patience and mindfulness and dedication and compassion and loving-kindness and truthfulness and wisdom. And these are simply the, the, the direction of one who sets oneself uh, on the course of a bodhisattva. The first task, of course, for the bodhisattva is actually to center yourself, because without that, um, it's pretty hard to operate um, in a world that's as confusing and speedy and difficult and so forth um, as this one is. I'm looking for this passage, but I don't have it from Tokutanda. Basically, he, he writes this Tibetan Lama, that unless we find a way to center ourselves. We will be blown by the winds of praise and blame. 
and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and not stay, stay true to our heart's uh, deepest purpose. We will instead be either lost or even, he uses the word, bound by, enslaved by forces that are not true to our deepest values. So we each must find a way to quiet ourselves, to center ourselves, and to live from that truth, and then we offer it to others. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, and I um, uh, speak about his teachings often because he's such an inspiration, he said, even in times of difficulty, the Bodhisattva has maintains the dedication to bring awakening. When you confront the kinds of difficulties we face during the war in Vietnam, you see that you can be a source of compassion and a great help to many suffering people. In that intense suffering, you feel a kind of relief and joy within yourself because you know that you can become an instrument of compassion. So even when things are difficult, you center yourself and you turn toward those difficulties and you say, all right, let me use this as bodhisattva practice, which is a very different strategy than running away from them. And when I first went in the forest monastery, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, and he said to me at the gate, as I was coming in as a new monk, he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And that's a kind of weird greeting, you know, for somebody (laughs) coming to your door. And I, I said, you know, could he please explain it? He said, it's simple. There are two kinds of suffering. The kind you run away from that follows you everywhere. And the kind you turn and face that brings you the possibility of real freedom. And that's what we're interested in here. If you're, if you're game for that, please come in the gates. So as a bodhisattva, we acknowledge the Buddha's first noble truth of dukkha, which means that life is insecure that there is loss, that praise and blame and gain and loss are always changing, and, and, and uh, pleasure and pain. And we also acknowledge that it's not the end of the story. Right now there is um, an economic crisis that has many people frightened and anxious, understandably, There's still this whole kind of political game. Yes, the election was resolved, um, but what will happen with all these difficulties? How will the parties, how will the the different warring energies in a certain way within the country move us forward? And then there's also our our personal uh, losses and difficulties. And as I said uh, last week or the week before when I was here, um, I believe that it's an act of resistance. It's a revolutionary act to not buy into the fear, to stay calm and centered through difficult times. Um, Again, as Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, he said, when we, uh, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone else to survive. So that, which I recite often, is a, is a beautiful and a poetic image, a genuine, a, a true story, but also a poetic image for what it means to carry the dignity of a bodhisattva in difficult times. 
because it's not the end of the story. Even in difficulties, we see the human possibility of integrity, of joy, of well-being. And on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, as the story is told, as the myth is told, after he awakened to this great inner freedom, nirvana, peace, unentangled with the comings and goings of the world, then it said he sat and turned his eyes, now of wisdom, to survey the world, and tears began to run down his cheeks, tears of compassion, because he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, everyone wanting to find their way of being happy, yet often doing the very things that would lead to more suffering. And from those tears in one story, rose um, when they touched the earth, rose up the Bodhisattva Tara, who then went out and ministered to the world in, um, in the form of compassion for all beings. But what's also true in the myth, in that myth or that story, is that after the Buddha's enlightenment, when he became clear and free and connected with all things, he rose up from that seat of enlightenment that you can go and visit or someplace near it anyway in India, this great temple around the Bodhi tree, to walk the long dusty roads of India for 45 years. And he said, with open hands and for benefit of all that he met, offering the teachings of liberation that are good in the beginning and good in the middle and good in the end. So this is the phrase that's used. Um, and so that was the act, if you will, of a bodhisattva. If someone says, I've discovered this way of being that is liberating and freeing um, and joyful, and now the only thing is to meet beings everywhere and say, this is possible for you too. You too have Buddha nature. You too can awaken. And this teaching... And the Bodhisattva's way of life rests on the fundamental understanding of Buddhist psychology that we have within us a basic goodness and a fundamental nobility. And on many nights I've told stories like the story of the school teacher who had all the children on a difficult day secretly write one good thing about everybody in the class and then put it all together. And when people got the page that said the one good thing that everybody had said about all the other 26 kids in the class, it changed their lives to just read that. Or when the Dalai Lama was here teaching some years ago, and they had 80 secret service here. They had a bunch of them on horseback in the hills, you know. They were having a good time, basically, these, these guys and gals who were all pretty young and buff, and they got to ride horses around, and it was kind of fun for them, you know. But anyway, at the end of the Dalai Lama's teaching and being here, because he's a head of state, the State Department takes care of him and so forth, the Secret Service folks all got together and they wanted their picture taken with the Dalai Lama. He thanked them and held their hand. And they said, you know, we've guarded so many people, prime ministers and princes and queens and you know, leaders from around the world, but the Dalai Lama is different. You know, we've guarded all these people that are regarded as special. And he's different because he treats us as if we're special. He treats us as if we're worthy of protection as he is. 
and they could feel it. And you know, then there was this, I've watched them take their photograph, and they're all grinning and holding hands with the Dalai Lama, and it's just beautiful. So the premise of Buddhist psychology and of the work of the Bodhisattva is to see this fundamental beauty in every being. And when we're not caught in trauma and fear and those things, it begins to shine. Marcus Aurelius, who wrote, Though you be outcast from nature, it lies within your power to join again. It's part of us when we get out of the casing, if you will, of our trauma and the ways that we've closed down, understandably, in our life, and reconnect with what we really care about. Um, and it's there in everybody, in little gestures and in big ways. I told a couple of years ago, my, my daughter was driving home from Berkeley, where she had gone to um, college, university, and she was coming over the um, Babe, uh, I mean, the Richmond Bridge, and driving down Sir Francis Drake Boulevard near where the ferry leaves in, by Larkspur Landing. Um, and all of a sudden, she got just to right where the ferry was, and the traffic just stopped right in front of her. The car stopped, nothing was moving. She said, this is really odd, and it stayed there for a while, and she got really curious, so she stepped out of her car. And the roads, four lanes there with a little tiny median in the middle, and she walked forward two cars ahead, and there was a mother duck with 11 little ducklings that were trying to go from the land side, she was trying to go from the land side across this four-lane highway and get over to where the ferries get back to the water. So there were, there were a few people out, and then more and more people got out of their cars, and they're all watching the duck and the ducklings, <laughs> and they got to the to the middle, to the median, and the mother duck climbed up, and then all the little ducks got up there. And it was like, okay, they're cool now, right? We can go again. And they were about to go back in their cars, and then the mother duck hopped off the median and started across the other side. But the traffic was still going on the other side, so all the people ran out and stopped the traffic, you know, and the ducks went over. And then the curb on the, on the ferry side is really high. It's like a foot high, so the mother got up. But the little ducklings couldn't quite make it. You know, the people were there, they started to kind of lift up the ducklings and put them on them. Everybody felt like their day was better for it, right? <laughs> it's like make way for ducklings in the room, if you know that make way for ducklings story. So I told that story, it was a couple of years ago, and for the next four weeks, people came up and told me duckling stories. They weren't all about, I mean, the woman who was riding on the Casio Valley Road, and a, a bird hit her car. Um, and she stopped, and there it was on the side of the road. It was, I forget what kind of bird, but it was, you know, in shock. And she picked it up, and she just held it, hoping that it hadn't broken its neck or wasn't going to die. And it was there for a long, long, long time. And she just held it. She said, it was like my meditation. I was there, and it was warm, and I didn't know what happened. And after about four or five minutes, all of a sudden, this head poked up, and this bird eye turned and looked at her. She said, and it was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into, you know? And then the head turned around and looked the other way, um, fluffed its feathers a little bit, and then just flew off. And she said, oh, it made my day. There is something about turning one's heart toward the uh, teachings of the Bodhisattva, the work of the Bodhisattva, that simply invites connectedness 
where are we, wherever we are, it's transmitted, if you will, from one being to another. Um, for those of you who don't know about mirror neurons, how many people don't know about mirror neurons? Some, yeah, good. I get to tell you. So, look up here. I'm really thirsty. After all this hard work of teaching, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I have this glass of water, and I take a big gulp of water. And while I was taking this drink of water, and you were watching, had you been put in an fMRI, and uh, you, all the activities of your brain monitored, the same parts of your brain and your nervous system that light up when you take a drink of water were all activated watching me. There's a whole set of mirror neurons. It used to be called limbic resonance and things like that. But basically, we are wired together. And so when I drink, it affects you. And not only when I drink, but when the things of the world affect us because we are interdependent. And the Bodhisattva, then, it's not that I'm doing this for someone, but rather it's us. Here's a poem from one of my favorite poets, Alison Luderman from Oakland, called At the Corner Store. It was a new old man behind the counter, skinny, brown, and eager. He greeted me like a long-lost daughter, as if we both came from the same world, someplace warmer and more gracious than this cold city. I was thirsty and alone, sick at heart, grief-soiled, and his face lit up as if I were his prodigal daughter returning, coming back to the freezer bins in front of the register, which were still and always filled with the same old cable car ice cream sandwiches and cheap frozen greens back to the knobs of beef and packages of hot dogs, these familiar shelves strung with potato chips and corn chips, stacked up boxes of, stacked up beer boxes and an immortal Jim Beam. I lumbered to the case and bought my precious bottled water, and he returned my change beaming, as if I were the bright new buds on the just bursting open cherry trees, as if I were everything beautiful struggling to grow and he was blessing me as he handed me my dime. Over the dirty counter in the plastic tub of red licorice whips, this old man, who didn't speak English, beamed out, beamed out love to me in the iron week after my mother's death, so that when I emerged from his store, my whole cockeyed life, what a beautiful failure, glowed gold like a sunset after rain. Frustrated city dogs were yelping in their yards, mad with passion behind chain-link fences, and in the driveway of a peeling paint house, a woman and a girl danced to contagious reggae. Praise Allah, Jah, the Buddha, Kuan Yin, Jesus, Mary, and even jealous old Jehovah. For, for eyes, hands of the divine are everywhere. And so it's contagious. You can go anywhere and you meet the bodhisattvas in every form. And what's transmitted is this shift of identity, not living so much in what's called the small sense of self or the body of fear, but this bigger sense of connectedness with life. This shift of identity 
or what's transmitted, you could call the archetype of the bodhisattva of wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. And archetype is a Jungian term that's kind of like, as, as most of you know, perhaps related to Platonic ideals, um, or in the Buddhist tradition it might be equivalent to the Sambhogakaya. It speaks of the patterns or the forms, or the ideals, or the ideas that are the universal forms with which things manifest. Um, so there's archetype, the ideal of the hero, or the mother, or the healer, you know, or the lover, or the, the archetype of evil. I mean, Hitler kind of personifies the archetype of evil in modern times, but in the Buddhist tradition it was Mara who had every form of aggression, but before aggression, all the forms of temptation and the forms of selfishness and the forms of loving of power and the forms of enjoying causing suffering to others, all the things that we associate with evil, that, that, that's a certain realm of possibility. And of course, in every tradition, there are these archetypes, you know, in the, in the Greek tradition, in the gods and goddesses, there's Hermes, who's the messenger, and... Zeus, more into power, and um, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and Aphrodite of beauty, and so forth. They're all, in some way, represent human possibilities for us. And so the Bodhisattva, or the Buddha, is one of the great archetypes of human life, one of the great images or ideals, the ideal of the Bodhisattva. Now, when you manifest in leadership as... Um, Barack Obama is now doing, you become not just yourself, but you become the image that carries the archetype, the projection for all these people. And it's not an easy thing to carry the projection of so much hope and so much fear, because it's both um, of so many people. And it takes a certain dignity and emptiness and integrity to be able to carry that and stay true to yourself. You need some kind of vow. I don't know what his vows are, but you do need them. That's bigger than all the energies that swirl around you of praise and blame and gain and loss and adulation and, you know, disrepute. You need the vow that says, let me act with integrity and act well without attachment to what people say, without attachment even to the fruits of the action. Let me let the actions come from this inner compass. This is what leadership asks for. Now, when we look at a leader in that way, we also see ourselves, because that gets projected on. It's really our own Buddha nature. It's the, it's the, the, the hopes of people are also the hopes for themselves, of who they are. And it's such an amazing thing, because here we are incarnated into this mysterious human body. Nobody knows how they got in here, right? I mean, really, how did you get here? You know, with this little bit of fur in a few places, and as I like to say, the hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly and kind of glug them through the tube, and, you know, and the way we communicate by making funny shapes with our mouth and teeth and pushing air out and saying words and people get the meaning of it. It's so bizarre. It really is. It's strange. But somehow we were born into this human incarnation. And, you know, we notice, I like to talk about when you look in the mirror, you know, 
you notice that you've aged, but you don't necessarily feel older. And that's because it's just your body that's aged, right? And the body exists in time, so it's born and it grows up and it gets old and so forth. But the one who knows, the one who looks, the consciousness goes, well, the body's aging far out. There's some part of us that realizes that this isn't all who we are. And you came in before the body, you know, and took this body, and you'll see what happens later, but that's another story. (laughs) But anyway, so we're incarnated in this human life. What are we going to do with it? And for the bodhisattva, it's to say, let me make something beautiful. Let me awaken to what's true not be lost. And Nelson Mandela writes, he says, it never hurts to think too highly of a person. They often act the better because of it. So when one comes in and looks and sees the Buddha nature or the potential for good in human beings, you start to act as a bodhisattva. That is, you see in this mystery something behind these eyes in each person. Okay, a story for you that you haven't heard yet, a new story. So fun. This is from the radio show This American Life, okay, called Superman. I was in the Las Vegas airport when I noticed this guy dressed like Superman. I'm talking red boots, blue spandex leggings, a yellow belt, a big S on his chest, and of course a red cape. I was struck by how authentic his outfit was. He had no baggage. He looked calm and happy and sort of out of place. I figured he was a performer from the casinos. There was a lot of excitement on the plane. The pilot made an announcement. SM's hotel called. He left his Pokemon pajamas in the room where did we send them. Everyone cracked up. But Superman seemed relaxed and happy. People passed him and said things like, Hey, SM, what do you need the plane for? His answers... His answers were short and polite. He seemed pretty normal for a guy in a Superman costume. (laughs) So I went to visit him. His real name is Mark Wiesenbeek, and he lives in Auburn, Washington. How often do you dress up? Every weekend I get a chance to, I put it on. I'll do it. If not too much is going on, I do. I can't wait to put it on because as soon as somebody sees me, sees you, their day is different. They got a story to tell. <laughs> Something they'll always remember. I guarantee the pilot's still talking about it. <laughs> His two-bedroom apartment is filled with Superman memorabilia, dishes, sheets, mouse pad, costumes, five heads side by side. <clears throat> and then he also has eight Batman masks. <laughs> Feels like a locker room for superheroes. He started dressing like Superman five years ago when his wife died in a car accident. He said, it hit me. She doesn't have any more tomorrow, so I better start getting as much out of today as I can. What would help me to do it? I enjoy wearing a costume, and I couldn't wait to get out and have other people see it. It's been a kick ever since. (laughs) First time in public, I went out, dressed up to put gas in my car, and the nearby car went nuts. I knew right then I'm on to something. This is going to be fun. When they honk at you, they're saying, there's Superman. The neat thing is, they won't stop honking until you give them eye contact. They know you're looking at them, and they're looking at you, and the whole cycle is complete, and everybody's having a good time. He taught himself to sew. Batman and Winter, because warmer, made of foam rubber, his 
attention to detail. If it wasn't perfect, I'd be letting everyone down. You have to look authentic, otherwise you're a joke. Authenticity is the key to being taken seriously. <laughs> so, periodically, he goes to bars in costume. I ask to go with him. He suits up. His car has Superman license plates, floor mats, logo, and a, and a t-shirt on the floor. He doesn't want to scuff his boots, right? Where should Superman go on a Monday night? Auburn's claim to fame is a drive through on the way to the area's only Ikea. I was nervous. I thought we'd get laughed out of the place. A grown man dressed as Superman and me following him with headphones and a microphone. <laughs> so we went into a sports bar. I was worried. He was excited. The bar was half full, mostly people in their 20s, playing pool, tattoos, piercings. Crowd is young. Outfit does best with people who grew up with Superman over 40. He stands near the pool table. I'm overprotective and scared. Maybe they need to know the story of Mark's wife's dying. I wanted them to like him. He was enjoying himself. He looks good in good shape. He was sipping his Diet Coke and fielding questions. Hey, man of steel. On the way out, though, a group of guys are blocking the exit. Are you the weirdo wearing tights? The guy stood chest to chest with him. Mark said no one has ever tried to beat him up. This night might be the first, I thought. But before I knew it, the guy was giving Mark a hug. Not a full-blown hug, and I'm not gay side hug that guys give each other, right? <laughs> Still, it was a pretty big change from someone who was wanting to beat him up 30 seconds earlier. He was saying, dude, it takes a lot of guts to wear that, and that sucks about your wife. When people talk to him like this, Mark chucks it up to the costume. I think they like him in spite of the costume. He's out there all vulnerable, with no defenses and no aggression, and he's excited to be in spandex leggings and a superhero cape. <laughs> it helps that, it doesn't, that, that he doesn't seem to notice when people laugh at the costume. He assumes that everyone is into it, and it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. He acts like they're into it, and so he acts nice. And when someone acts so nice, it wins them over. So, bodhisattvas, get your costumes. <laughs> now, the beautiful thing is that you're already in costume. This is the great thing. You are wearing the perfect costume for the bodhisattva in your particular life. You know, you have your own particular cape, you know, and your own tights or whatever it is. You have your costume. And it might be Aung San Suu Kyi, and she's got her, you know, bodhisattva task in her little house in Rangoon where she's under house arrest and still carries the, the, the spirit and the light of freedom for so many people in Burma, you know, or you can learn your favorite bodhisattva because there are so many, including yourself. Now what's true is that the bodhisattva never does it alone. That's part of what also makes it fun, as Superman is finding out. Um, one Buddhist text writes, With the release from all fears and confusion and clinging, the shining, luminous nature of the heart is revealed. And now there is awakened in you exceeding compassion, <clears throat> and you are offering your life for the liberation of all beings, even though your meditation has cleansed away any idea that such beings exist apart from yourself. 
he will serve them. So as you practice the Bodhisattva practice, what you start to realize is actually interdependence. That Superman and the people who, you know, were amused and had great stories to tell and so forth, they needed one another. They were actually part of this human dance together. And when Barack Obama said, I need your help as a president-elect, it was really the wisdom of the Bodhisattva. It's not me, him, or anybody. It's us. So you sit and meditate and practice mindfulness and take the seat that can be aware of fears and joys and longings and disappointments and love and hate and all of these things. And as you do, you begin to remember who you are. You remember your own Buddha nature. You remember that it's possible to witness the arising and passing of experience and not be so frightened by it, not be so lost, not be so caught. And so that is the training of the Bodhisattva to then go out in all these circumstances. Now it happens at this time that because the world is in pretty difficult shape, environmentally, financially, a variety of other ways, that we have both great difficulty and as you know everyone says classically, also great opportunity. My friend Joanna Macy calls this the time of the great turning, when the consciousness of the world needs to turn from unbridled consumerism and the sense of independence to stewardship, sustainability, interdependence, because it's us. And the old model doesn't work. Um, my teacher, Ajahn Dasa in the forests of Thailand used to say, the lungs of the forests, trees interbreathe with yours, and the same monsoon rain that nourishes the dry earth and holds the fish washes through your bloodstream. We inter-are with this earth. The driving force in nature on this kind of planet, writes Lewis Thomas, on this biosphere is cooperation the most inventive and novel of all schemes in nature, and the most significant in determining the great process of evolution is symbiosis, which is simply cooperation carried to its highest degree. We interbe. And so it's not that someone does it, but that somehow we begin to understand who we are, that we're everything. This wonderful Tibetan Lama Kala Rinpoche said, you live in the illusion, the illusion of separateness. You live in the appearance of things, and you do not remember who you are. When you remember, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So you sit in meditation, as we did, and all these things come and go, where are they? Where are those thoughts? Where are those feelings, those images? They're gone. They came out of emptiness, they did their little dance, and they disappeared, just like yesterday, and last week, and, you know, Y2K, and the pharaohs in Egypt, and, you know, the dinosaurs, and your childhood. I mean, you have a memory of it, and it's stored in some ways, but it's gone. 
And everything comes, troops out of nothingness, and it displays itself and it disappears. This is the dance of incarnation. And the Bodhisattva understands this, and then there's a revolution that begins to take place that frees us from this unbridled consumerism that says, look at this dance of life. We are a part of it. We are not separate from it. And a whole new set of values of consciousness comes in. Here's the Buddha speaking. He says, hmm. Wealth is neither good nor bad, just as life itself is neither good nor bad. All depends on what is done with it. If it's obtained lawfully and spent selfishly, it will not bring happiness. But if wealth comes through lawful means and is obtained without harming others, then one can be joyful about it. One remembers the dangers of too much attachment and shares it for good purpose. And in this way, what we gather becomes a blessing for all beings. So it's not that we don't have this incarnation. It's not that we don't live in it. But we see it in a different way. Here we are, you know, in this particular moment in history, and it's a, a difficult one and a tremendously exciting one. And as we practice, and our sense of freedom and well-being and in, in, interdependence grows, it becomes the lamp for all of those around us. This beautiful set of Bodhisattva vows from Diane Ackerman, where she writes, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. She wrote that as a, she calls it school prayer. Wouldn't that be nice for kids to recite in the morning? <laughs> the Bodhisattva begins to realize that all things are workable. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, what were the times in your life where you learned wisdom and courage and the deepest love and compassion, the most important things? Were they when things were easy? If you reflect, or when, they, were they, when times were difficult. And you begin to realize that it's not a mistake that there's pleasure and pain and, and joy and sorrow and gain and loss, that they're the weavings of life, and it's what you do with it that matters. As Ellie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourselves or others, you degrade, even betray it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our sufferings well. So yes, we have difficulty, but it's workable. Fear, I know you. Illness, yes, this is part of human life. Joy, planting the garden, making things grow, this is also a part of it. Social difficulties, the environment. Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. <laughs> there is hope. The earth has in it a deep wisdom, and it is our time to tend it. That's all. 
And this is the work of the Bodhisattva. So a question for you. What would be or what is your Bodhisattva vows? If you were to make Bodhisattva vows, and a couple times a year we have a day long where people actually create and recite Bodhisattva vows. If you take a moment to reflect, what's the compass of your heart turned to? If you could make your own vows, what would they be? daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. That's her vows. But you may have your own, in your own language, in your own way. And if you don't, you might reflect on it. If you could set this compass, what, what, where would you set it to? <coughs> and a second question for you to reflect on. How do you practice, how can you practice to keep yourself connected to these vows? How do you steady yourself? And take a moment, you can even close your eyes and think back over the last week, or if not the last week, over the last month. What is it that brought you most steadiness, equanimity, clarity? Because you need this in these times. You need your meditation and your walks in the mountains and your yoga, your quiet time and your times of prayer, and maybe your times of singing. But in these times we need this very much. And if you're to be the bodhisattva that you are, not only do you need the vows, but you also need the way to tend this garden so that the gateway can swing open easily, the oil on the hinge, as the poet says, so you can always go there. It's not easy. Human incarnation is hard. There's plenty of difficulty and loss and suffering, as well as almost unbearable beauty, and they're woven together. And the world doesn't need more oil or more energy. It doesn't. It needs less greed less hatred, less racism and, you know, warfare. It needs a change of consciousness. It does. And it's come in this great turning to be... Uh, it's, it's a desperate time in a certain way. It's the time that we have to make this change collectively. Six and a half billion, close to seven billion people, we have to live in a different way. 
The outer work, says Meister Eckhart, the mystic, the outer work will never be puny if the inner work is great. So whether it's Barack Obama or you, it turns out you're related, in case you didn't know that. Um, You're in it together, the same family, Uncle Barack, right? (laughs) It is, that's how they say it in most every other part of the world, right? Auntie Condoleezza and Uncle Barack. That's how it is. And when you wake up, you realize, what else is there to do? I mean, what do you want to do with your life? You, you can make something beautiful, you know, as a garden or a merchant or a teacher or a gardener or a merchant or a teacher or an artist and so forth. But it has to be done from a beautiful heart. In the Buddhist tradition, the Bodhisattva appears in a thousand forms and exemplifies steadiness and integrity and sacrifice, willingness, joy. There's Vimalakirti, the Bodhisattva, who made himself sick to go into the hospitals and clinics to teach the doctors and nurses not to forget compassion. Then he made himself, you know, go and practice in the bars so he could talk to all the other drunks with him and about waking up. And he's a great kind of image of the Bodhisattva. He just goes everywhere, you know. Or Anattapindika, who is this great, wealthy, the wealthiest merchant of the Buddhist time, businessman, who created these beautiful temples and practice places, not just for the monks and nuns, but for the whole community to awaken together. And there were, you know, Deepama, the great enlightened yogi and grandmother, and um, this wonderful video I just got, an award-winning movie called Buddha's Lost Children, about this monk in northern Thailand who runs the monastery of the Golden Horse. And he takes orphans from around the um, um, opium territory, the mountains of the Golden Triangle, whose parents are drug addicts or who have died. And he takes them in and he feeds them and he gets, gives them each a horse to take care of, which brings them back their own spirit and life. And then trains them. He was also a, a Thai kickboxer, a martial artist, and he trains them that in the monastery so that they have they can defend themselves. It's a fantastic movie. Um, and basically, he saw this tattooed, wild old kickboxing martial artist who got a vision one day. He said, I have to help these children. Bodhisattva in his, in his form. In the 80s, I was a reporter at a newspaper in Sarasota, Florida, where, apropos of a cub reporter in the hot summers, I spent a lot of time covering fires. And what I discovered was that more than, more than an opportunity to practice the basic skills of reporting, offer, it offered a window into how ordinary people respond in extraordinary circumstances. One woman I will never forget. I parked my car behind the police line reporters were supposed to stop at and walked around till I found a way into the wooded area where the woods were blazing. Helicopters flew overhead, the pilot periodically swooping low to fill buckets with water from a pond and drop them onto the blaze. With the fire already sweeping across hundreds of acres, firefighters were focused on directing the course of the fire rather than putting it out, and limiting injuries by instructing people still in their homes to get out. However, this one woman, Mrs. Garcia, whose house I happened to be standing beside, refused to go. Her husband was at work, her children at school, and she stood in her yard with a hose in one hand and a kitchen broom in the other. 
Alone with the fire no more than a few yards away, she sprayed the back of her house and roof with water and clutched the broom to fight off any flames that came near. A moment later, the fire crossed the back line to her property, approached her house, and then jumped it. Because she had hosed it down, because she had stayed, the flames would not catch on. When she dropped off her kids at school that morning, when she said goodbye to her husband, she'd had no idea of what she would do or be capable of doing that day. From the outside, perhaps on any other day, she looked like a completely ordinary woman, home on Wednesday, taking care of household chores until the kids returned. But on this day, she defied the authorities who told her to leave and stood in the line of a tremendous forest fire. She stood her ground and armed with no more than a garden hose and a broom saved her home. I think of this woman often, not because she was a hero on the order of Martin Luther King or Rachel Carlson, but because she was an ordinary woman who was able to find remarkable strength in herself. And if she could do it, doesn't that promise exist in us all? After the fire passed, I introduced myself and asked how she had mustered the courage. I had no choice, she said. I had to take care. I just couldn't let our house burn. There are so many ways to be a bodhisattva in your life and where you work and with the children in your life and the old people and the people who are driving around you and the circumstances of your finances and circumstances of your community. Um, take the time to quiet yourself. Take the time to listen inwardly to what are your deepest intentions. Set the compass of your heart and then dance. Let's sit for a minute. underestimate the power of the human heart to transform this world. Mm. 
So I thank you for your kind attention and your own reflection and for your generosity and support. Um, next week, um, Jetson Ma, Ani Tenzin Palma will be here and we'll share the teaching together. Um, before we go out into this almost winter, late autumn evening, um, I'd like us to do a very simple chant and then we'll... Um, carry whatever of benefit you may have found in yourself here back to wherever you go next. So the chant is this. In India, when you meet a person, the tradition is to put your hands together um, and greet them with the word namaste. And namaste is a Sanskrit word that means, Hindi Sanskrit word, that means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. The root of the word namaste in Sanskrit, Pali, is the word namo, which means to bow to or to pay respects to. So I'd like us to chant namo nine times. And as we do, you can inwardly feel what you would like to bow to, to your own highest intentions, to someone that has inspired you, to something that you care about deeply or someone who's in difficulty, you want to pay your respects to what they're going through, to something that's difficult in the world that asks for your caring attention. You can bow in really to anything. If it moves, you can bow to it, basically. Um, and then uh, at the end, we'll go out into the evening. Na- of the Bodhisattva wherever you go. Thank you. Good night.